Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm your host, Pamela Diotis Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. Today's episode is the first of a multi-part series on Malina Makuri, child of a powerful political family, breakout on the stage in the classical plays of Aristophanes and Nebrepidis, popularly known as Aristophanes and Euripides, headliner of one of the first Greek movies to break into the international motion picture market, Broadway star, anti-fascist, politician, proponent of Greek culture and education. She was fun, exciting, passionate, and so very, very Greek. In this episode, we'll talk about the early years, from Alina's chaotic and culturally rich childhood to her start on the Greek stage. I grew up on Malina Makuri. My mother played her music in the house all the time. That husky, sultry voice that sounded of cigarettes and metaxa. That could only be Greek. I especially remember the soundtrack to the Broadway show Elia Darling, based on her smash movie, Never on Sunday. Imagine modern Greeks on Broadway in the 60s. I don't know how many times my mother saw that show in the days when Broadway tickets were affordable. But that record played so often, I'm surprised it didn't wear out. Thea Alexandra, Alice was her American name, brought it for Christmas one year, all wrapped up in a bow. And my mother shrieked like a little kid and put it on immediately to the disgruntlement of the non-Greeks at the Christmas table. I remember thinking, it was Thea Alice on the cover of that album because she always looked slim and sexy and sultry and had the same husky, smoky voice. My sister and I learned all of the songs by heart, wailing like the heartbroken prostitute on one of the tracks of the album. I'll never let down anymore. We were six and four. Melina was a hero to my mother in ways I didn't understand at the time. She was fresh, rebellious, a free-spirited working woman who didn't hesitate to speak her mind at a time when Greek women were still very much expected to protect their honor and the honor of their family, quietly, meekly. I think my mother would have liked to have been Melina, to call the shots as she saw them, pursue a career, enjoy other people's children, and then go back to a luxurious apartment to sing and dance and be responsible only to herself. And then the junta came and Greece fell under the military dictatorship that tried to squeeze the life out of her. And Melina continued to be my mother's hero because she called out the regime and instigated against it and would not be silenced. And she continued to use her connections and her strength to fight for Greece and Greek culture and to strengthen Greece and her people for the rest of her life. I was too young to take any interest in the political stuff and the reasons why uncles and cousins were showing up fresh from Greece looking tired but hopeful, missing Greece, longing for Greece, but determined to put roots down here in the U.S. I only knew that voice I could never get enough of, the larger-than-life personality that was Melina. It wasn't until I saw her statue in Athens this past spring that I began to really understand just how important she was to all of Greece, and I wanted to know why. Elinez.com, in an article called The Woman Who Made History, claims Melina's family originally came from the Arbolida Prefecture in the eastern part of the Peloponnesos, like the left thumb of the peninsula on the side closer to Athens. 
Molina's family was believed to have fought in the Greek Revolution of 1821 and would have been hard-pressed to avoid it. The Peloponnesos was ravaged. It would have not been unusual for her family to make its way to Athens after the devastation of that war. Many did. She was an unusual, unruly little girl who came from privilege and trauma. She made stupid mistakes and did things she regretted, but she survived a teenage marriage, the Nazi occupation of Athens, the Greek Civil War, the Colonel's Coup, more Civil War, politics, illness, and the death of many of her friends. She served her country as a minister of the government, an ambassador for art and theater. She drew in Eastern Europe to the cultural community of Western Europe after the collapse of the Cold War. She advocated to educate Greeks in their own history and culture and became the first woman in government to demand the return of the Parthenon marbles ripped from their home atop the Acropolis by a thieving weasel of a man named Lord Elgin. We'll be talking about him again soon. Her autobiography, her memoir, I Was Born Greek, is a wonderful read, full of passion and fun and fight, and a mini history of Athens and Greece from the 1930s to the early 90s. All the stuff about the civil wars and the military dictatorship and the 20th century monarchy that I didn't want to know as a kid because it was all too confusing and the adults got way too emotional talking about it. I've always loved the Molina I knew from childhood, but now I feel I know her better. She reveled in decadence while others went without and took responsibility for it. She was thoughtless and careless and foolish and she owned up to that too. Because she loved her country, she grew up. She loved her culture, she loved her people. So she lost her citizenship, lost her home, and risked her life to see Greece free again. Amalia Maria Makuri was born in Athens on October 18, 1920. Some articles said 1923, one even said 1925. But the Malina Makuri Foundation, established by her husband, Jules Desan, says 1920. So I'm going to run with that. Melina was the nickname her grandfather gave her, an endearment derived from the word meli, meaning honey. Like me, pa meli, all honey. But I think Melina is much prettier. In her memoir, she says her family didn't have a lot of money, but they had a lot of power and privilege. They were an upper-class family, and they were politically connected. I also kind of suspect what meant money to her and what meant money to the rest of Greece may have been two different things. Her grandfather was Spiros Makouris, the popular mayor of Athens for 30 years. Her family lived in the house with Spiros, where important politicians, artists, philosophers, poets, writers, as well as everyday people looking for help with their problems, paraded in or out, or gathered for a meal and debate. Melina learned to be comfortable around all sorts of people and all sorts of ideas. Spiros Makouris was godfather to dozens and dozens of children in the city, which kind of only made him that much more influential. Being the mayor of Athens was an incredibly important and powerful political position. Melina said to be mayor of Athens in those days meant being more powerful than anyone in parliament or even a minister to the crown. The monarchy in Greece was sort of in and out of power and favor during Melina's childhood, and in and out right up into her middle age. As mayor of the capital of Greece, the largest city in the country, her popular papu had sway, and he commanded the family that lived in his home. Molina's father, Stamatis Mukuris, who was in government himself, and her mother, Irini. 
Another son of Spiros was Yorgos Mokouris, and there was grandmother Amalia, and Melina's younger brother Spiros, named after his grandfather. The elder Spiros was a tyrant and a womanizer adored by his family, and he shaped the spoiled Melina's life. We were all slaves to him, she said, but it was a slavery that was sweet. In some ways, Spiros Mokouris, the powerful mayor of Athens, seemed more Melina's servant. She hated school and skipped out regularly to go to the cinema, and her grandfather was often her accomplice. He drove through the city regularly in an open carriage, bowing and waving to his constituents, and Melina usually sat next to him, learning how to bow and wave to the populace. There's a story about the midday meals at the Makudi's house, with sweet French custards cooling on the sideboard. Doesn't sound like poverty to me. And little Melina sneaking in ahead of everyone to spit in each of the dishes. <laughs> when she was finally caught, her papu defended her. So she spat, but with style, like an aristocrat. Spiros wouldn't allow Melina's mother Irini to beat her. Normally a Greek mama's prerogative with a headstrong child, especially a girl. So no holds barred for Melina. I'm also assuming there are no timeouts or restrictions of privileges. She grew up very differently from the average Greek child, even today. If Papu Spiros was king in this family, Melina was queen. Melina only recounts one of many naughty, naughty episodes where her mother wallops her. One day at age 10, she skipped school, dressed up in Irini's clothes and makeup, and went to what Melina called a forbidden cafe. I assume one not considered appropriate for children. And she danced for the cafe's customers to enthusiastic applause. Someone ratted her out. Everybody in Athens knew who she was. And Mame Irini showed up, clobbered Marine, Melina, and dragged her out. Pretty sure the same would happen today, but this was the 1930s, and Greece was stricter than its already judgy European counterparts on proper behavior, especially for an upper-class girl. Behaving this way brought shame on the girl and shame on her family, and any other papu might have beaten her silly. But Melina was not chastened by this experience. She enjoyed all the attention. Spiros Makouris had a lot of enemies, being such a powerful man. So he had a squad of bodyguards. Melina says she made playmates out of her grandfather's bodyguards. They let little Melina play with her handguns and brass knuckles. Two of her favorites, Mimis and Costas, even made sure that she graduated high school on time. Melina's hatred for school meant she never passed any of her classes. She only advanced from one grade to the next because the teachers and headmasters of her schools were afraid not to pass her. She was booted out of many a school, it seems, but she was never failed. When it was time to graduate high school, though, Melina was required to pass a national exam. No passing grade on the exam, no graduating. She admits she knew nothing. She couldn't answer any of the questions on the exam and was very much confused by the overly accommodating test proctor until finally she noticed Mimis and Costas standing a little to the side just outside the door with their pistols drawn. Melina graduated, the city band came into play for her as the diploma was hung on a wall in the mayor's house. Melina's father gets less attention in her memoir, partly due to his many infidelities, 
culminating in an abandoning Adini when she was very pregnant with her son, little Spiros. Melina was only three. The infidelities had been accepted by her long-suffering mother, but being dumped and later divorced, easier done in the Orthodox Church than the Catholic, but still quite the scandal, it was too much. There was no forgiving that. Melina was traumatized enough at sharing the family's attention with the new baby without her father exiting and eventually marrying his mistress. As a boy, of course, little Spiros was a Greek god. A boy was the greatest blessing a Greek family could hope for. The family name would continue. She hated him, at least in the early years. But worse was yet to come. Because Irini wanted to leave the Makuri's house and go back to her mother, separating Melina from her adoring grandfather. Well, not really. They lived nearby, and Melina visited him every day at lunchtime. He remained the largest force in her life. But Yaya Lapis, the maternal grandmother, was a bit grim, a bit severe, and wasn't at all charmed by Melina's misbehavior, as Papu had been. She was a sad widow who wanted discipline in her house, and I can't imagine. Her life must have been turned upside down by little Melina. Then the other shoe dropped, like son, like father. Big Spiros apparently had his own share of dalliances with the ladies, and like his son, made the mistake of falling in love with one of them. Melina's happy, carefree Yaya Amalia felt almost as betrayed as his granddaughter, according to Melina. This Greek soap opera went on and on as Spiros refused to give up his new love, and the family had to live with the scandal. Melina decided quite young she would never be the subservient wife, never tolerate any mistreatment from a man. The double standard her mother and grandmother lived with were not for her. Meanwhile, she continued visiting the theater and cinema with Papu Spiros. She'd fallen in love with the idea of performing, especially because of the reception she received at her debut as a 10-year-old dancer in the Forbidden Café. When she was 13, Papu Spiros took her to see the great Marika Kotopoli, first lady of the Greek theater. But she didn't pay any attention to the star of the show. She fell in love with the male lead, a known womanizer adored by many of the women of Athens. Marina begged, borrowed, and stole to buy tickets to repeatedly return to the theater to see him. She basically stalked him. She followed him around. She went to his house where his lover answered the door, none too happy. Eventually, he met with her a few times, kissed her once, oh my heart, and decided she was too young. Her family gathered to denounce her as a fallen woman, this 13-year-old girl. Her uncle slapped her, something she was not used to. She had brought shame onto the family. They assumed she had done things that she hadn't done. Her grandfather was distraught. Soon after, Papu Spiros died. Not because he thought she was sleeping around with a guy who had no interest. Think about the life he lived. Smoking endlessly, I mean, he was Greek. Womanizing continuously. Drama everywhere as he ran the biggest city in Greece. Melina was devastated. She didn't run into the comforting arms of her family, though. She ran to the leading man she'd been stalking, named Yorgos, who took pity on her. He taught her how to properly read a play, introduced her to French poetry, and finally got bored and took off. 
Well, she decided her path going forward. She wanted to be an actress. Very unbecoming for a young lady of her station in life. She was forbidden by her parents, her grandmothers, and everyone else in the family. She was finagling for an audition at the Dramatic School of the National Theater. Very prestigious. As a minor, her parents could easily prevent this. So she waited until her mother was out of town and got the audition. She recited a poem by Kostas Kariotakis, considered one of the greatest Greek poets of the 1920s. And she was accepted into the program at age 16. But she soon realized her family was not going to relent. They were not going to let her follow her dream of the theater. So at 17, she did the only thing she could. She married a very wealthy, divorced, much older man, one of the biggest landowners in all of Greece, who she'd had a flirtatious dalliance with at the age of 15 when her family had taken her to an island retreat. Okay, Melina, y'all did have money, and your mama was not paying as much attention to you as my mama did when I was 15. There would be no going to dances with 30-something men or hanging out on their yacht. Panayimu. She said of her first husband, Pan Harakopos, he had very liberal ideas on the role of women. She kept her last name, unheard of back then. I got abused over that 50 years later. And she more or less lived her own life as she saw fit. Melina entered the drama school and lived a rather decadent life with Pan in a huge penthouse near Constitution Square. She spent hours studying at the theater under the very distinguished actor and director, Dimitrios Rondidis. She flirted with young men, went out with her friends, and partied and danced. I cannot even begin to explain how scandalous Molina's behavior was considered at the time. In the 90s in Greece, it would have been scandalous. And I'm not talking about the teenage marriage part. That was known to happen. It happened a couple of times in my family. Ugh. And marrying a divorced man? Horrors. The way she dressed and flirted and approached men and aspired to the theater, this was all terribly trashy. It was assumed that she lost her honor at a very early age, as we've discussed. Honorable young ladies didn't do these things, and Melina really didn't seem to care. She should not be forced to uphold the double standard. Her father and grandfather fooled around repeatedly, probably with women much younger than themselves. They went out into the world and did what they wanted for their careers, for their private lives. Papuspiro's scandalous behavior didn't stop him from being mayor. Babastamatis, Molina's father, was a politician. You've got to respect that she was going to make her own choices, mistakes and all. The Second World War began and the Nazis occupied Greece in 1941. Molina's father, Stamatis, had volunteered for frontline duty at the start before the Nazis defeated and occupied Greece. He became a captain of the cavalry. After the fall of Greece, he joined a resistance group. His brother, Yorgos, became a Nazi collaborator. He was the founder of the Greek Nationalist Socialist Party. Greek Nazis! Not a popular bunch, but they couldn't be touched under the occupation. After the war, they would pay. Can you imagine one man fighting in the resistance, his brother a collaborator, truly written like a Greek tragedy. I can see it on the stage. The collaborators were armed and attacked members of the resistance. Stamatis never spoke to his brother again. The Greek people suffered terribly under the Nazi occupation. Food was scarce because everything from the farms went directly to supply the Nazis. 
People were shot on the street for the smallest infractions, sometimes just for fun. But Melina herself admitted she kept living her life. She was ashamed later at her recklessness, her selfishness. But she was practically still a child whose marriage had in essence ended months after it began. Pan was still wealthy and able to afford food, and even had it shipped down from his country properties. They had servants at their luxurious apartment on Academia Street. Many of Melina's friends weren't so lucky during the war, and Pan's apartment became kind of a boarding house for homeless friends or people avoiding arrest. She passed money along to her teenage brother Spiros, who, as a teenager, had joined a resistance group called Ipan, the youth wing of the National Liberation Front. These kids painted anti-Nazi graffiti on the walls, passed on information and propaganda that they carried in their school bags. They led Greek Jews or wanted members of the resistance into hiding. Many of these children were killed for their work. There's a famous story of Greek resistance during World War II involving two teenagers, Manolis Glesos, later to become a friend of Molina's, and his buddy Apostolos Santos. The Nazi flag had been flying atop the Acropolis since the occupation began. Armed sentinels patrolled there. Can you imagine, as a Greek, every day walking out, you can see the Acropolis from everywhere, seeing the Nazi flag hanging over your city. So, armed sentinels are patrolling. Manolis and Apostolos crawled up the very steep incline to get up, waited for the sentinels to pass, and made for the flagpole. With a dramatic struggle where they raced against time and the return of the patrol, they managed to get down that Nazi flag, to lower it, ball it up, and disappear down the hill into the city without the sentinels noticing. The next morning, when Greeks looked up and saw that big, ugly swastika missing, they had a mini-party. Manolis, years later, became a deputy in the Greek parliament. That's when Molina came to know him. What he and Apostolos did that night energized the Greek people and the resistance. If they had been caught, they would have been publicly executed. Melina said later she regretted not participating in the resistance. But many who did remembered her contributions, and a few of them slept on Pond's living room floor. Meanwhile, Melina starts dating a profiteer, a man working in the black market while still married to Pond. Alexis profited off of the Germans and supplied food to Melina and her friends. She became reckless for the thrills, and she stole money from Alexis, who was an underground criminal, to give her brother money for the resistance. She tells of a story of sitting with Alexis and two friends in a bar, something very risky in those days with Nazis everywhere, when three SS soldiers came in and demand the group get up and sit with them. Melina and friends ignored them until they pulled out their guns. The friends then went to sit with the German soldiers, even tough guy Alexis, but not Melina. One of the soldiers finally fires a gun, shattering a glass near her, and Melina flips out, screaming at the Germans, calling them names, mostly pigs. Luckily, the German military police had been called and showed up just in time to escort the drunken SS soldiers out of the bar. She's very lucky to have gotten out of there alive. Her friends were lucky to get out of there alive. But Melina says in her memoir, I was so revolted by myself. People much younger than I were dying so Greece could be free. I almost got killed to show off in a bar. Melina continued through drama school throughout the war. Liberation came in October 1944, and soon after, Melina and Yorgos, he's back, the actor she'd stalked when she was a girl, formed an acting troupe together. 
her first acting job in public would be the new play, The Path of Freedom, where Melina played a young woman helping the resistance punish her traitor father. The audience hated her for being rich, for having a good time during the war, for being well-fed, for having a lover who was an underworld criminal. They remembered everything she had done during the war. How dare she represent someone sacrificing for Greece? Her stage debut was a disaster, but the disaster was short-lived. A power struggle was under, underway between the royalists, supported by the British government, who'd made their appearance as soon as the Nazis were out, and the partisans. One of the strongest resistance groups that had fought in the mountains against the Nazis were communists. And the British government and all the allied governments didn't like that and tried to disarm them. People were dying on the streets again, just months after the Nazis had left, this time Greeks by Greek hands. Melina still had no interest in politics in spite of her grandfather and father's long careers in government. She was aware of events, but didn't seem one group as being any better than the other. She grieved for the suffering, but didn't want any part of it. She wanted to stick to her acting. That was her world. She was still the spoiled, sheltered little girl Bapu Spiros had raised. Next episode, we'll talk about Melina finding the success she wanted on stage and making her way into some of the most talked about films of the 1950s and 60s, including the award-winning Never on Sunday, written by the man who had become husband number two, Jules Dassin, and how a military coup in Greece, while she was starring on Broadway, finally pushed her to take a stand and fight for her country. Thanks for listening. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, Pamela Diodes Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Our thanks to Eduardo Gill, who always finds the most interesting tidbits of information on every topic we cover. Visit our website at stealthgreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at Greek underscore like underscore me. See you next time. Yes.